Hi everybody and welcome back to our second journal club. As with every journal club, I'm personally excited, but I'm particularly pumped about this session because we have two outstanding speakers. Our session today will be about uh, a subgroup of patients which requires our special attention, not children or pregnant women, but the immune compromised. Our speakers today are Dr. Elaine Tennant and Dr. Camille Nelson-Cotton. Dr. Tennant was educated among other institutions at the University of Nottingham School of Medicine and the Liverpool School uh, and the Australian Institute of Tropical Health and Medicine and has been until she recently relocated to Germany, an infectious diseases consultant at Prince Wales Hospital, Sydney and acting co-director of the Communicable Diseases Branch at New South Wales Health Australia. Dr. Camille Nelson-Cotton attended the University of Chicago Presbyterian School of Medicine and trained at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. She is the Clinical Director for Transplant and Immune-Compromised Host Infectious Disease at Massachusetts General Hospital and an Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School. Also a member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Before we go through today's study, COVID, we'll actually go through the current uh, recommendations by the CDC for the immune compromised. And then towards the end, we'll put the study into context. And with that, I'll hand over to Dr. Cotton. It's really a pleasure to um, be here with everyone today. I will be talking about COVID-19 vaccines and sort of laying some framework for discussion of uh, vaccines in immunocompromised patients. Um, I know that this is an international call. My focus will be on a summary of the U.S. Uh, Center for Disease Control CDC guidelines, um, but obviously that changes in different locations. So what is the definition of immunocompromised patients? And you can see here that it's people who are actively undergoing treatment for tumors and hematologic malignancies, those who have had solid organ transplants and taking immunosuppression, people who've had CAR T-cell therapy or stem cell transplants, also moderate or severe primary immunodeficiency like DeGeorge syndrome or Wiscott-Aldrich uh, syndrome, people who've had advanced or untreated HIV infection, in other words, uh, low CD4 count, um, et cetera. And then perhaps one of the bigger categories is anyone who's on treatment with high-dose corticosteroids at least 20 milligrams of prednisone per day when administered for at least two weeks, alkylating agents, antimetabolites, transplant-related immunosuppression, TNF-alpha drugs, other biologic agents. Um, so, and then important to think about um, their immune competence in patients, um, including disease severity, duration, clinical stability, complications, comorbidities, along with their immune-suppressing um, treatments. Um, so this does account for approximately 3% of the U.S. population, and uh, it is one of the overall, one of the populations that has suffered the most during the COVID-19 pandemic from um, severe illness. So just to highlight, what are the current recommendations for non-immunocompromised? Uh, you can see here that for um, those age 12 and older, it was recommended that there be a two-dose mRNA scheme and now followed by a booster dose at least five months after the second dose. Okay, so I call that the two plus one. Two initially followed by one five months later. If it were a Janssen J&J &J vaccine as the first dose, there should be a booster dose at least two months after the first dose. And in December, we said that preferentially that should be an mRNA vaccine. Okay, so that's, that's the playing field for non-immunocompromised. 
And then for immunocompromised, I call this the three plus one. So basically it's three doses, three full doses of the primary vaccines, vaccines, followed by a booster dose at least three months after the third dose. So this is the really the three plus one, um, as you can see here. Uh, Janssen is a dose of um, Janssen uh, vaccine followed by another vaccine at least four weeks later, and then a booster dose at least two months after that additional dose. A little bit confusing, um, but it's either three plus one or the two plus one. Um, and I would like to highlight that at the bottom, there's this great website that if you bookmark this, you will have all the answers to COVID vaccines that you could possibly want. It's really, it's very dense. There are great things in the appendix. Um, I refer to this many times a day. Um, so what about, we get a lot of questions about, can we uh, make antibody, uh, vaccines uh, recommendations based on antibody testing? And that is not recommended at this time because we don't have appropriate thresholds for protection. It also doesn't measure the cellular immune response. And I wanted to highlight um, for this audience that there are additional considerations that came out February 11th. But so on a case-by-case -case basis, we can um, make recommendations for moderately or severely immunocompromised patients uh, to give an additional um, dose of vaccine um, when needed, when the benefits of vaccination are deemed to outweigh the potential and unknown risk for the recipients. Um, this doesn't mean that we should, you know, just randomly make things up, but when you think that somebody really likely did not have a good immune response to their initial series or any of their doses of vaccine, maybe they were getting steroids for you know, COPD flare or any number of things, you are now allowed to have flexibility to repeat those doses of vaccine. Um, and then another part of this is also think about treatment guidelines for the use of monoclonal antibodies, as well as pre-exposure prophylaxis for moderately or severely immunocompromised people who may not mount an immune response to COVID-19 vaccine. And then just to highlight from the um, NIH guidelines that um, who should get pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, there are a lot of questions about things like Evusheld. Um, Evusheld, uh, which is this combination um, monoclonal antibody, is um, uh, not authorized for use in unvaccinated people. So it is really meant as, you know, somebody has been fully vaccinated with all the doses I described, and then an additional dose of Evusheld on top. I kind of call it a belt and suspenders. You know, you have both vaccines, but where in people in whom the vaccines may not engender a robust immune response, Evusheld provides monoclonal antibody protection, a different way of protecting people from COVID-19. Um, who needs pre-exposure prophylaxis? There, there's a well-defined list from NIH, which is quite similar to the list I already presented. Um, and that's just, all of this is really food for thought for what Elaine is now going to present in this paper. Um, but I wanted you to all know sort of the ground rules of what the current recommendations are. Elaine, over to you. Elaine, over to you. So thank you very much, um, Camille, for that um, great summary. And Ben, thanks very much for the opportunity to present this incredibly interesting study, which I think, um, you know, for hospitalists is very close to our hearts because um, we've all seen the impact of, um, you know, uh, 
periods of strict lockdowns and social distancing ending, there's jubilation generally as we return to a, a normal, normal, more normal life. Um, but for our patients that are immunocompromised, this has really created significant anxiety as the world has become um, what feels like a less, less safe place for them. All right. So um, similarly to America in Australia, um, we think that there are about 3% of patients that are considered to be immunocompromised. And so this represents significant numbers of patients that are affected. Um, based on a systematic review process, um, the CDC classifies several medical conditions as presenting higher risk for severe outcomes from COVID-19. Um, and these conditions are covered in the paper that I'm going to talk about. Um, also, um, previous studies have suggested that vaccines elicit poorer responses in immunocompromised people, um, and uh, as has been stated, receipt of an additional dose um, as part of the primary vaccination course um, may enhance this response and is part of vaccine policies in several countries. Um, However, this is a very heterogeneous group when we, when we use the word immunocompromised. So when we make clinical guidelines and policies, um, is it reasonable to lump all of these people together or do we need more of a nuanced and individualized approach to quantify the degree of risk for individuals? So um, the goals of this study were to assess the factors that elicit poor antibody responses amongst immunocompromised people and to measure um, neutralization titers after COVID-19 vaccination in individuals with a range of immunocompromising conditions compared to non-immunocompromised patients. Um, so this was a, a prospective observational study, um, which was um, kind of really run electronically and based on the EMR records. Um, so it involved um, 100, sorry, 1,271 adults who had completed their vaccine series um, and had not been infected with COVID as far as could be ascertained. Um, so this meant that there were um, just over 1,000 immunocompromised patients. And for the control group, they used hospital workers who had no um, known immunocompromising conditions. Um, the study took place between mid-April and mid-July last year. Um, the setting was in Pennsylvania, as discussed, um, and recruitment was mainly carried out via um, online word of mouth, um, hospital emails, hospital advertising, and discussions with individual clinicians. Um, patients entered their own conditions and medications, and then this information was verified by the, the study team on chart review and the data was managed using REDCap for um, collection and management. So the primary outcome was the, the proportion of immunocompromised individuals versus healthcare workers who had a, a reactive um, IgG um, for SARS-CoV-2 spike um, receptor binding domain. Um, and the secondary outcome um, looked at comparing antibody levels with pseudovirus neutralization titers. So as mentioned, there were um, 1,099 immunocompromised patients, and these fell into five different groups. So 41% um, were solid organ transplant recipients, 14% um, were hematological malignancy patients, there were 23% of um, the group who had um, autoimmune or chronic inflammatory conditions, 12% um, had solid cancers, and 8% or sorry, 8.6% had HIV infection. The controls were non-immunocompromised 
healthcare workers. If a person had been infected with COVID, they were excluded. This was based on self-report and verified by a review of um, PCR results from the EMR, noting that um, this was performed within a district. So there was obviously not visibility of um, tests that had been performed at other hospitals or in other areas. And so in terms of the inclusion criteria, adults had to have completed a vaccination course. And at this time, the um, standard of care for all patients, including immunocompromised patients, was a, a course um, of two doses of an mRNA vaccine and two doses of AstraZeneca or one dose of Johnson & Johnson. Um, and that's obviously changed um, since then, which affects how we um, kind of interpret the study. So in terms of the antibody assays, um, so all patients and healthcare workers had um, IgG measured. And then um, amongst a subset of the patients, they also did, I guess, a validation study to test the IgG levels on an alternative platform. So that was amongst 245 subjects. And then they performed pseudovirus neutralization assays on 100 subjects, so 50 healthcare workers and 50 immunocompromised patients. And I'll talk about that in a, a little bit more detail. So in terms of the antibody assays, as I said, it was uh, an IgG against the, the S protein RBD. Um, and the, the signal to cutoff ratios were interpreted either as seropositive. So anybody that was um, that had a um, serum to cutoff ratio of greater than one was considered as reactive or seropositive. Anybody that was equivocal, so less than one, um, even in that mid-range between 0.8 and one, um, or who was considered negative at less than 0.8, they were um, classified as seronegative. So it was a binary outcome. And then, as I mentioned, they used a second platform, the BioRad assay, on a, a subset of patients um, to see whether there was concordance between the two platforms. So in terms of pseudovirus neutralization titers, so they were performed to, to determine whether the IgG antibody levels correlated with actual virus neutralization in vitro. How is this done? So HEK293 cells are an immortalized cell line commonly used in cell biology research. And as we know, SARS-CoV-2 infects cells by its spike protein attaching to epithelial cells through the um, surface receptor ACE. And so they used human ACE, HEK293T cells that have um, a human ACE2 gene integrated into the cell chromosomes to form a, a clonal cell line that stably expresses ACE2. And then they used a pseudovirus to infect these cells. So pseudoviruses are, are non-replicating viruses that permit research in a, a lower um, biosecurity level lab, and um, they're commonly used in vaccine studies. So they, they, ser they use serially, serially diluted sera incubated in the presence of um, the pseudovirus and used it to infect the um, HEK2 cells. And then they, they measured the proportion of cells infected by luminescence at 48 hours. Results were reported as the highest serum dilution that neutralizes more than 50% of the pseudovirus. So, and that's expressed as NT50. So high NT50 would indicate high neutralizing antibody activity. As I said, there were 100 subjects in that group. So what about the baseline characteristics? So I apologize for the small writing, but there's quite a lot of information here condensed onto um, a small table. I've highlighted in red the areas that are of particular significance. Um, so the groups were different. You're looking at comorbid immunocompromised patients in a, so, um, against healthy 
um, healthcare workers. So there were significant differences in terms of age. Um, there was a preponderance of females amongst the healthcare workers group. Um, there was um, across the board, with the exception of obesity, um, there were significant differences in comorbidities, um, which are listed here um, between the immunocompromised and the control group. And the, it was a predominantly white population, so that might um, influence generalizability for um, interpretation. The other point to bring out was that the, um, the number of days from the second vaccine was recorded and amongst healthcare workers there was a, a longer duration of time and that obviously reflected the earlier rollout of the COVID vaccine amongst healthcare workers compared with the general population. In terms of vaccines, the vast majority of people had an mRNA vaccine um, and very few had a, an adenovirus vector vaccine. Of those that had an mRNA vaccine, there was a, a pretty close to 50-50 split between Pfizer and Moderna. I'll expand a bit more later about the level of um, the nature of immunocompromise um, of patients in the group. So results. Um, so seropositivity and antibody levels. Um, so first of all, concordance between the platforms. Um, so generally there was good agreement between the platforms um, as indicated by Spearman R analysis, um, which showed that the results were highly correlated with um, a p-value of um, less than 0.001. Although 13% of results overall were discordant, um, and particularly for HIV patients, there seemed to be a, a fairly high rate of discordant results. Um, and I think that's one thing that um, indicates um, or supports the recommendation that, um, you know, using serology can't necessarily be relied upon. Um, so what about seropositivity and antibody levels? So patients in the immunocompromised group had significantly lower antibody responses and rates of positivity. And the extent depended on the underlying immunocompromising condition. The median antibody levels were markedly lower among those with solid organ transplants and hematological malignancies compared with other groups. Healthcare workers had a rate of 92.4% um, seropositivity compared to 55.1% amongst the immunocompromised group as a whole. And amongst um, solid organ transplant recipients, the seropositivity rate dropped to 30.7%. So it was pretty low. Um, the authors performed a multivariable analysis um, looking at factors that um, were associated with a negative and um, antibody response by underlying condition. Um, and I've summarized these on the slides in the table. There were variables that they examined for all of the groups. And then obviously there were factors that were specific to each underlying immunocompromising condition um, that they analyzed separately within the group. So for variables that they looked at across all of the groups, they looked at age groups um, and the, the way that they classified the age groups was 19 to 44, 45 to 60 and 60 plus. Um, they looked at gender, they looked at race um, and they looked at type of vaccine received. And then also median days from vaccination at the time of the blood draw. Um, so for healthcare workers, um, out of all of those factors, um, time from vaccination was um, significantly associated um, as a, a predictor for lower odds of seropositivity. 
Um, and the reduction in probability of having a positive antibody test reduced each month post-vaccination. So um, at 30 days post-vaccination, it was 99.8%, and by 150 days, it had dropped to 91.8%. So we're still fairly high. Um, the pattern of antibody dropping with time was seen across most of the groups. For solid organ transplants, Factors significantly associated with lower odds of seropositivity included um, a greater age, um, non-white race, and um, vaccination with Pfizer as opposed to Moderna. Vaccination, and then in terms of specific factors, vaccination within one year of the um, transplant, probably associated with heavy immunosuppression, um, came out as a predictor. Um, the number of immunosuppressive medications um, was more likely to be associated with low um, seropositivity. Um, and there was a difference between the different types of organ transplants. So if you had a, um, a liver transplant, um, then um, your odds of having a poor vaccine response was less than, um, for instance, if you had a kidney transplant. There were only nine patients who'd had a recent episode of rejection, um, so pretty small numbers, but um, there was no association found between them and um, ha having a, a poor vaccine response. There were two other conditions for which it was found that there was an increased risk of seronegativity following vaccination with Pfizer as opposed to Moderna, and those were autoimmune conditions and solid tumours, and I'll discuss that in a bit more detail. The other factor that came out amongst several of the groups was that um, anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody therapy um, was associated with lower odds of seropositivity um, on the um, multivariable analysis. Um, for HIV patients, um, the group was fairly well. So 86.6% of patients um, had a CD4 count of greater than 200. Um, and most of them were virally suppressed as well. Um, and um, there were no general predictors amongst that particular group of um, having a, a reduced vaccine response. However, for those that did have a CD4 count less than 200, there was a, a significant risk of um, poor vaccine response. I've just written the hematological conditions. So these are fairly small numbers. There weren't any, um, there wasn't any evidence that underlying hematological condition affected seropositivity. Nine of the patients had undergone a stem cell transplant, whereas three had undergone um, car cell uh, sorry, CAR T cell therapy, and the seropositivity rates for those particular patients was 66.7% and 33.3% respectively. Amongst those patients with autoimmune conditions, that was around 200 patients, the only medication that significantly impacted vaccine response was anti-CD20 agents, and I've listed on the slides the number of patients that were taking um, a various array of other medications. What about solid organ transplant patients? So um, some previous studies have demonstrated that anti-metabolites such as mycophenolate and azathioprine are associated with poor humoral responses to COVID-19 vaccinations. However, in this study, it was really the addition of further medications, regardless of whether they were anti-metabolites or other immunosuppressants that was associated with lower rates of seropositivity. Um, and 
just going back to the list of autoimmune conditions, the anti-metabolites in that group were also not found to be a predictor of poor vaccine responses. Similarly for cancer therapies, so I've listed hematological malignancies and solid tumours here pulled out from the paper. There were no specific chemotherapeutic agents that came out as being associated with um, poor vaccine responses apart from anti-CD20 agents. So these are a worry and I, I guess the mechanism of action makes this unsurprising. Um, so 4.6% of all of the immunocompromised patients had received anti-CD20 therapy in the 12 months prior to being vaccinated. Um, and there was clearly a significant effect on seropositivity for all patients. So only 17.7% were seropositive compared with 57% of patients that were immunocompromised that hadn't received those agents. Um, and so after adjusting for age time from, and time from vaccination and type of vaccine, the authors found that there was a, an 84% reduction in attainment of seropositivity and vaccination in this group. Um, so as well as the binary outcome that has just been described of seropositivity or seronegativity, um, the authors did a further analysis looking at the continuous variable of actual antibody levels um, as, as measured by the serum to cutoff level. Um, so amongst all immunocompromised participants, there were significantly um, lower um, levels compared with the healthcare worker group. Um, and I've just pulled out figure 1B from the paper on the slides to illustrate that. Um, and the previous slide was looking at all patients. They also um, performed the same analysis amongst patients that were classified as seropositive. Um, and they found that those particularly with solid organ transplant, uh, who were solid organ transplant recipients, was, had a significantly lower um, level of antibodies than those amongst the healthcare worker control group. So what about vaccine type? I mentioned before that um, for the binary variable of seronegative or seropositive, um, there seemed to be um, a worse response with Pfizer as opposed to Moderna. Um, and uh, this was quite marked. Um, so looking at antibody levels as a continuous variable by vaccine type, the same kind of pattern emerged. So um, antibodies associated with mRNA1273 or Moderna were significantly higher than for BNT162B2 or Pfizer or an adenovirus vector vaccine. And that was after adjusting for time since vaccination age and underlying condition. Um, so the mean um, antibody levels for Moderna were 10.4, um, 5.25 for Pfizer and 1.82 for adenovirus vector vaccines. Um, noting that in the latter group, there were very few patients. So the next slide shows the correlation between antibody levels and serum to cutoff ratio and pseudovirus neutralization assay titers. Um, and so overall, amongst the group that were tested, so this is 50 patients, there was close correlation between the um, IgG antibody levels and the neutralization titers. Um, Neutralization teeters were lower in the immunocompromised group than the healthcare workers. Um, so a median of 52.2 versus 181.5 respectively, um, and that was statistically significant. Um, however, when the neutralization titer results were separated out into subgroups per antibody level, it was evident that for subjects with antibody levels between one and 10, 
um, there was a significant reduction in neutralization titers amongst the immunocompromised group. Um, so a median of 55.5 versus 93.9, um, which was statistically significant, despite there being no significant difference in antibody levels between the groups. So if you check the antibody levels, you could be falsely reassured that the um, your patient is protected, but when you looked at the actual neutralization assay titers, um, they were low. Um, and so I think that report supports the recommendation, again, that serology shouldn't be relied on for assessment of vaccine response in immunocompromised patients. Um, for patients that were seropositive and had a, an antibody level of greater than 10, um, that discrepancy with the neutralization assay titers wasn't seen. Um, and you can see that in the red boxes. So what about breakthrough infection? So this wasn't a clinical study and it wasn't looking at clinical outcomes, but they did report that within the median follow-up time of 67 days, there were two patients within the group who developed COVID infection. And both of them were seronegative. One had advanced HIV and was hospitalized with COVID pneumonia and one um, was a kidney transplant recipient and sadly passed away from um, COVID-19 respiratory failure. Um, they looked at the number of patients who had undergone PCR testing within that area, um, their hospital EMR facilities within that period, and they were all negative. So they weren't aware of any other COVID infections within the group. Um, so in terms of summary of the main findings, this was a prospective observational EMR embedded study of just over 12,000 adults who had been vaccinated for COVID-19, had no history of prior infection, um, and was looking at immunocompromised patients compared to healthy controls. Um, in terms of the major findings, there was clearly reduced seropositivity amongst immunocompromised patients compared to non-immunocompromised healthcare workers, noting that this was a, a two-dose primary schedule um, with the exception of Johnson & Johnson. Um, the rates of seropositivity varied per group and were lowest amongst um, solid organ transplant patients. Um, compared to healthcare workers, which were 92.4% positive, um, seropositivity amongst the, the SOC, SOT recipients was only 30%, followed by patients with hematological malignancies at 50%, solid tumours, autoimmune conditions and HIV all lying in the, the 70 to 80% range. Um, it was clear from the study that anti-CD20 and heavier immunosuppressive regimens in terms of number of drugs rather than type was associated with lower rates of seropositivity. Um, and the antibody levels declined with time. Um, the study also found um, that vaccination with Moderna was associated with higher antibody levels compared to Pfizer or adenovirus vector vaccines. Um, and virus neutralization titers corresponded generally with antibody levels, but um, amongst those with lower positive antibody levels, um, there was um, not good virus neutralization. Um, which was interesting. Um, the study had several limitations. So um, there was potentially some selection bias in terms of online recruitment. So more likely to um, be recruiting people that were highly engaged in care. There were differences between the, the studied and the control groups, which have already been discussed. 
Um, the healthcare worker group were longer from vaccination, um, although you might have expected then that the, the difference observed um, was in the vaccine response would have been um, more pronounced or underestimated. Um, there were low numbers of um, stem cell transplant patients. And if you work in a, a transplant center, then um, you really wanna know that information. Um, so, um, and then also low numbers of non-white patients, which might limit generalizability. Um, the study assessed obviously humoral on, and not cellular immunity. Um, it didn't look at clinical outcomes. So how do we translate this? Um, and um, we're not entirely sure whether patients had been infected with COVID previously. The, the processes to ascertain that information were not very robust. Um, finally, the neutralization titers um, were derived from a non-Delta, non-Omicron strain of COVID. Um, so it's hard to know whether the results would be applicable to these, these variants, which are circulating more commonly at the moment. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Camille for some discussion about this paper and putting it in context with um, the rest of the literature. Thank you. thank you. Elaine, thank you so much. That was magnificent. It's a huge paper, a lot of, a lot of data, but you um, did a beautiful job with that. So as you nicely highlighted, um, this work was done before August 2021 when we made that recommendation for the third additional dose as part of the primary series. Um, and it, this is the type of work that helped guide our thinking at that time when we made that recommendation. It's actually been an amazing journey on the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice because we've had to make uh, vaccine recommendations without a lot of robust study data because we couldn't really wait for things to be done when we just had to save lives in the setting of an um, international pandemic. Um, so it is a pretty heterogeneous group. Um, I think they did a nice job with what they had. It does highlight the issues that we've had in the United States where we don't have a large, robust ability to collect good public health data. Um, that's been highlighted where you know Israel has done an amazing job showing the data, all the information we need, you know, their ability to accumulate information rapidly and make rapid, um, uh, rapid recommendations has been phenomenal. And we have not had that in um, the United States. So this is state of Pennsylvania, which is great, um, but we could, certainly could do better. Um, I saw that Ashish job was, um, will be working at the White House now and he's a big public health person. So hopefully things will improve. Um, they did just look at antibody response, not cellular response. And um, as you've uh, highlighted, there are some issues when we just look at the antibody response. Um, we have seen a disconnect in the organ transplant population where some people have a more robust um, response to by antibody, some are more robust by cellular and they don't always correlate. Um, there are a lot of common themes that we've seen in other work where Moderna does look to be a little superior to Pfizer. One thing that we don't know is really if that holds true when we have the booster dose Moderna, which is 50 micrograms, not 100 micrograms. Um, so we don't really know that full impact. I say it's a coin toss as far as which one you get for a booster, either full dose Pfizer or half dose Moderna. We've also seen that liver transplant patients seem to be better protected by vaccination in other studies. Um, and then 
we've definitely all seen the impact of the anti-CD20 therapies in this population, and they've had these prolonged courses, and it's been pretty devastating, which is um, definitely um, something that you um, highlighted in the paper. But um, I think, you know, my bottom line is this is, it, it's a magnificent um, tour de force to have all of this um, work done. Um, moving forward, uh, I think that we need to stay up to date in our, on our recommendations for additional doses of vaccine boosters, monoclonal antibodies, um, we need to continue to gather data and best help protect this vulnerable population, you know, estimated to be 3% of the US, US population um, and significant uh, in other countries as well, um, so that we can help prevent them from getting um, COVID-19. All right, I think we'll end here. Uh, Dr. Stanand and Cotton, thank you both so much. Uh, please send us uh, feedback uh, via tweets, get on our mailing list, and see you next time. Thank you.